Hi, this is Ruth Malden. You're listening to the RUF Ole Miss podcast for November 14th, 2007. read a larger section tonight because I just think it's that beautiful. Um, Revelation 21 and 22. I want to read both chapters. I know it's long. I only have 21 there on your chapters, but I'm going to read 22 for you as well because um, it's important to see how this book ends as we finish our study uh, through the book of Revelation this semester. So Revelation 21 and 22, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, And showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx. 
the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made with uh, made of a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to enter, the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. I wonder how many of you know what it is to have a taboo. A a, a taboo is simply a topic 
that your particular cross-section of culture has decided that we're just not going to talk about. It used to be that those things were primarily sexual in nature. But to be honest with you, those days are quite gone. Uh, Very few of you would flinch if I have a discussion with you of any kind about any sort of sexual issue. What do you think about homosexuality? If I bring out that topic, I've got a great conversation going in seconds. But D.A. Carson has convinced me that there is one last taboo among our culture that we rarely ever talk about. And that's the taboo of death. Death, Carson says, is the one last thing. To be honest with you, I can talk about every single conceivable sexual dysfunction known to mankind. But the second that I stand up and say something like, let me talk to you about how my brother died of cancer. Or, let me tell you about the time when I lost my sister to a drunk driving accident. Suddenly it gets deathly quiet and you can cut the tension with a knife. In many ways, death itself is a taboo for our culture. But I've got to be honest with you, there are few things that have become more vivid to me in my, at least in the last six or seven years of being here at Old Miss, that part of my responsibility as a pastor to you is to prepare you for your inevitable death. Is that dismal? <laughs> is that a dark topic to end with? I don't think that it is. Uh, Carson tells the story of a young woman in his church where he lives who was actually um, dying of cancer. Very much at death's door she was. And they held a prayer meeting where the entire church gathered together to pray for God to bring some miraculous healing to this woman. And during the prayer meeting, Carson's wife began to pray, Lord, if it be your will, please heal this woman. But if it's not, would you at least give her the grace to die well? Carson said that person after person came up to his wife afterwards, horrified that she would say such a thing. How dare you talk about that? How dare you say that? The truth of the matter is, is it used to be that Christians always talked about death because Christians knew they were always facing death. In our culture, we have been totally anesthetized against death, that we never come anywhere close to it, and we never know how to talk about it. I think the last two chapters of the book of Revelation are wonderful instruction about how to die well. It's not a morbid topic. It's one that everyone has to face. And eventually some of you will have to face yourselves. All of us will have to face. But the beauty is is that God leaves us with the ultimate destiny of His people. That's the encouragement. The joy that comes from seeing this incredible vision has power itself to transform us in the now. And give us the courage to even face our own deaths. It's very much like a golf swing. I like to tell people that I'll occasionally go out and play the game of golf, but as uh, at least a handful of people in this room will tell you, uh, I would not consider myself a golfer. Brad McKay is grinning, but never, never mind why. But any good golf coach will tell you that there's all kinds of preparation to be done in a swing. You can work tirelessly on your stance and your grip, your take back and your downswing. But the truth of the matter is, is there's something important in your swing that most people don't pay attention to, and that's the follow-through. In other words, a lot of times, where your club ends up will help correct a lot of the problems in the first part. Same way in our understanding of death. My friends, to get the ending right, to get the end of your own time correct, 
tends to fix a lot of the problems that we have up until that time. That's my premise tonight. Uh, you know, I think about it all the time when, when you guys get engaged. No offense, fellas, but some of the most irresponsible of you do miraculous transformations with your impending marriage uh, as soon as you get engaged. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, some of those irresponsible guys will change in a second when they know marriage is coming, right? It's so wonderful. It transforms us in the now, does it not? And it turns out that that illustration actually fits because what is in store for God's people is this simple notion, you're going to be a bride. Eventually, all the people, sorry fellas, guys included, are going to collectively be a bride. And that's the way He wants to prepare us for heaven. Three simple thoughts we can race through in this last of our studies through Revelation. First of all, I want you to notice the bride's new location. The bride has a brand new location. Answer... Heaven. (laughs) That's where the bride is. But there are a few topics that I get a chance to talk with college students about that are more misunderstood than the topic of heaven. And I would simply introduce this by saying that heaven is both very much like and very much unlike what you see around you now. That's my simple opening premise statement here. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at this first. First, we find that heaven is going to be continuous with what we have now. Listen very carefully to this because a lot of people miss this. Notice there in chapter in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 21, heaven is something, the new heavens and the earth and a new earth are coming down. Heaven is not somewhere up in the sky. That's not where it is. Heaven comes down at this point. The new Jerusalem and the new earth that's coming come to us. There's a commentator named Scotty Smith. He's actually a pastor in Nashville at Christ Community there who has this wonderful little uh, uh, study on Revelation that I would highly commend to all of you. But he has a wonderful quote on this. He says this. He said, it's more accurate to say that heaven is going to come to us rather than say that we are going to go to heaven. You see, according to the scriptures, our eternal celebration is not going to take place somewhere up in the clouds, but rather right here in God's world, which will be totally remade and renewed. Now look, you've heard me say on a number of occasions that it is very dangerous to separate, and Christianity is very much against this particular Gnostic notion, to separate your physical existence from your spiritual existence. And yet, over and over again, whenever I bring up the topic of heaven with with, with, with some of you, this question comes up. Les, let me ask you a question. Do you think we'll know each other in heaven? Do you think we'll know each other? Do you think that we'll be able to recognize each other in heaven? What's the assumption? The assumption is is that in heaven will be nothing more than a bunch of disembodied spirits, sort of, I don't know, wafting through eternity or something like that, right? <laughs> and how can I recognize another uh, spirit if I'm there? Look, there is no, that is an anti, that's a denial of God's good creation to suggest that the world we have around us, the living, breathing beauties that exist around us every single day, will somehow be discarded in the new heavens and the new earth. Look, y'all, there's no reason to think that we won't have conversations just like this when we get to heaven. Heaven will be continuous with what we have here, and in many ways is very much the same. Richard Pratt actually reminded us uh, last semester, for those of you that were here for this, that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say this, do we not? 
we pray in the Lord's Prayer? We say we pray for God's will to be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the Christian is always trying to bring heaven down to earth. That's in many ways our goal in life, in many ways there. This is what uh, Peterson says about this. He says, heaven is not remote, either in time or space, but immediate. Heaven is not what we wait for until the rapture or where we go when we die. But what is, what it is, is barely out of the range of our senses, but brought to our senses by John's visions in the book of Revelation. We are now able to look upon the events around us, not as a hopeless morass of pagan deception and human misery, but as the birth pangs of a new creation and a beckoning to participate in God's remaking of God's creation. Figure out that paragraph and you understand what we're about in RUF. We're trying to bring heaven here to transform this world around us into the beauty that God intends it to be. Now, but having said that, (laughs) there's a real sense in which what's coming in heaven is totally different. It's all new. As a matter of fact, I love the fact that in those first verses, God continues to say, Behold, in verse 5, I am making all things new. Isn't it wonderful that there is something in the very character of this God that will continually be doing something new. Isn't that wonderful? He is both the ancient of days, as old as He can be, and as constant as He can be. But at the same time, it's always new. There's always something new. In our culture's obsession with youth, (laughs) how many plastic surgery shows are there on cable these days, right? Every show I flip to is a show about plastic surgery. And of course we look and we crave that. We crave newness. We want youth. And these idols though in our culture, if you think about it, may be something legitimate for us to long for. It may be that we want so much for a day where there are no tears, there's no death, there's no pain, no crying. And the truth is that is supposed to send through your hearts, y'all, Echoes of longing. Come on. (laughs) Isn't that something inside your own soul that you look and say, I wish so badly that I could be in a place that was like that. So therefore, this is the bride's new location. Secondly, we see the bride's new look. Now look, bear with me for just a second. Some of you are getting ready to freak out by what I'm getting ready to say. But just walk with me for a second through this. Because the bulk of our passage that we read tonight deals with this one issue. The bride has a new look. And so often, and honestly, I'm one of those people, people make the mistake of assuming when they're reading this passage that these descriptions are descriptions of the city in which the bride will inhabit, that the bride will live. But if you notice very carefully, that's not what the passage is saying. The passage looks and says that the city is a description of the bride. Look at verse 9. The angel comes to John and says, Come, I will show you the bride. And then the very next verse, he carried me away and showed me the holy city. Listen, the description of the city in all of these 12,000 stadia, listen very carefully, is not where we're going to live. It is a figurative description of you when you get there. Okay, listen to Scotty Smith again. It's going to take me a while here. 
He says, all my life I thought that we Christians would be spending an eternity walking on streets of gold and having gone through pearly white gates into the eternal city whose cubicle walls are made of all kinds of precious jewels. Now I find out, listen, that we, the wife of Jesus, are the city. Did you catch that? Look, now look, gentlemen, (laughs) gentlemen, I recognize that in probably none of your most rapturously romantic moments, did you ever look across at the young lady whose eyes, you know, limpid pools, (laughs) into which you stare? There was probably never a time where you looked at her and said, darling, you look like a city. (laughs) No one ever said that. But now look, but if you'll go with me just a little while here, I'll bet you'll find that this image is infinitely more powerful. Because John tells us three things. Remember, John's describing you. First he says there's the beauty of the precious stones. Oh, this is so good. Verse 11 says that the city is radiant. Verses 18 to 21 show us that these same stones that exist in the city were actually the same stones that existed on a small little metal plate that the high priest in the Old Testament wore when he went to stand before God. We called it an ephod, but it was just a breastplate, right? And it was studded with these gorgeous, extremely valuable uh, stones. But now remember, we're trying to picture this as if it's a preparation for death. And so what John is saying, listen, 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 y'all. John is saying that if you are a follower of the Lamb tonight, at the moment of your death... At the moment of your death, you are to be cloaked in an unimaginable beauty. Immediately, a breathtaking, earth-shattering beauty. And to be honest with you, I think that this drives so much of what we do. Can you tell how much inside of you longs to be valuable? To know that I'm attractive, And typically we want that to be to someone else. But aren't those just echoes of wanting that from other people? From wanting it ultimately? I find it very interesting that it's most of the women in the room that sort of get this more than the men. You know, guys, honestly, I think oftentimes too harsh on women for flipping through the fashion magazines, right? But nevertheless, the guys do the same thing in their own particular ways. But the truth of the matter is we're talking about the bride of Christ. And the truth is female gender is a metaphor for that reality. And so this is one of the reasons I think why women get this a little bit better. They understand, ladies, don't you? That desire on the inside for someone to simply look at your appearance and say, Wow. Every one of you knows what that longing feels like. Wishing that I was beautiful enough to do that. What Jesus is saying and what John is saying is that at the very moment of your death, you'll be cloaked in just that. C.S. Lewis says that if we could see you then, see you now the way you will be then, we would all be horribly tempted to fall down and worship you. So splendid with light will you be. Precious stones. Secondly, we find out that we get these big high walls, right? Again, if you try to calculate this whole thing in physical terms, y'all, you'll see how absurd it is to take this as if it's the literal place where we'll live. The city would be somewhere around 1,365 miles wide, long, and high. Dennis Johnson in his, in his commentary on this passage says, As for the height, the top of the city wall standing 1,365 miles high would extend into the orbit path of most man-made satellites. Listen to what he says after this. That's why it's absurd. 
But he says, these measurements, however, listen, 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 are not to be understood as physical data, but as enhancing the vision's vision's imagery concerning the church's immensity and her security. Did you catch that? What John is saying is, is on that day, at the moment of your death, you will suddenly be escorted into a huge, mighty mass of people. I know for some of you that are more alone people and like to have your own alone time, that doesn't sound too good. But here's the deal. What it means is, is throughout eternity, you will never, ever, ever, ever be alone, ever. Ever again. To be constantly dwelling with God's people. But then secondly, he not only says, more more importantly, it's not just that there will be a lot of people there. But while you're there, you're safe as a kitten. That's what the walls are describing, is that you are safe there. John, this is what Johnson says, John is not describing an eternally secure place. He is describing an eternally secure people. Look, y'all, I want to suggest to you that deep in the heart of every single individual in this room is a desire to know that not only is all going well, but that it's going to continue to go well. And what Jesus promises His people is, is there will be eternal safety in the husband arms of Jesus. And every one of us has that to look forward to. Finally, He looks and says that the last mark of the church will be her intense satisfaction. No more longing. No more wishing. All the hurts have been healed as she drinks from the water of life and plucks the leaves and there will be a balm for her healing. And of course, we see that there's fruit that will come every single month. Isn't that a wonderful thought? What's he saying? He's saying that there will never be a time in heaven, listen, where the joys you experience come back to you empty. Oh, this is a good one. For many of you, you have had the blessing, curse, of getting almost everything that you want. Of almost everything you could ever materially want. Have you felt what happens when people typically get that? Because for most people who actually get the thing that they crave more than anything else in the world, they get a hold of it, they have it in front of them, and the first thought that they think is this. Is that all? Is that all there is? It always comes up empty. And on the inside we look and we realize that it just doesn't satisfy. It doesn't get it. Ah, But in heaven, every joy that we experience will bring everlasting joys. It'll never stop. It'll never fade. It'll never go away. Um, My friend Kevin Teasley made a hole-in-one this summer. He's a real golfer. I'm not. First hole-in-one ever. And I talked to him in July and visited with him a little bit about it. And I was like, well, Kevin, how was it? How was the rest of your round after? He goes, you know, Les, the weirdest thing about it was is I suddenly realized that I was bored with my golf game. I had done it. I had made an ace, right? I would finally done what I would always waited to do, and I couldn't t- describe to you how empty I felt. I think most of us feel that way about everything. We're just not honest enough with ourselves to admit it. And the truth of the matter is, is it possible? Is it possible that the only way to explain that longing in you is because there's only one thing that can ultimately fulfill that longing? Is that possible? The bride's new uh, look, or the bride's new, uh, yeah, the bride's new uh, look. Finally and thirdly, and I'll finish with this, the bride's new life. The bride's new life. Look, I don't know of any better way to sort of prepare us all for our own sort of deathly hallows, to use the uh, Harry Potter lingo there, than to finish in the same way that chapter 22 does. And that is 
with the means by which we go, go about obtaining this destiny. How can that be mine? How can I know at my death that this will be true of me? To that end, I want you to notice the overarching theme of all these verses. Right? Of all these verses. Chapter 21, verse 3 focuses on the fact that the essence of heaven is what? To be with God. 21, 7 says that there, will be, that there God will be a father to us all. In 21, 22, he mentions the fact that there will be no more temple. Right? You see, the temple was the place where you went to mediate the presence of God. No more in heaven. No more. Because God's presence will be immediate and accessible right there. Even the dimensions of the city scream that fact because the picture is one of a perfect cube. The dimensions of the city are created as a perfect cube. Now that wouldn't be interesting to you unless you knew that there are a couple other significant cubes in the Bible. The description as it comes to us in Genesis chapter 1 of the Garden of Eden comes to us laid out in a perfect square set off by the dimensions of the rivers. We find later on when God instructs His people to build the tabernacle that there's a room in the very back of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Guess what its dimensions are? A perfect cube. You see what John is saying? John is saying that what the Holy of Holies meant was it was the place where you went to be with God. And yet there was a curtain there separating man from his relationship with God. Not in heaven. (laughs) Because the truth of the matter is the dimensions of of the city suggest that you and I will have immediate access to God. To be able to talk with God face to face as a man talks with his friends. Because you, your own life will be the dwelling place of God and the place where God will dwell. My friends, look, the point is heaven is not what it is because it will be a cessation of pain or death, or sorrow, though it will be all of that. Heaven is heavenly because He is there. That's what the passage is saying. I mean, the fulfillment of mankind's destiny, both personal and corporate, is to finally be with the Lord, or as C.S. Lewis said, caught up in this divine dance of Trinitarian glory and mutuality. It is to be eternally swept up into everything wonderful that you ever dreamed about but never thought you could ever truly attain. Look, I know many of you joke about how I end all of my RUF messages with the whole thing about it being an invitation. But the truth is, I end all of RUFs with an invitation because the Bible itself ends in an invitation, does it not? Because I wonder if verses 14 and 15 made anybody in the room nervous of chapter 22. Did you see those descriptions there? If anyone in this room, I think, was honest, you'd have to admit that those can be descriptions of all of us. Murderers, sexually immoral, idolaters, anyone who loves and practices falsehood. And the truth is, it sounds as if John is saying, it sounds as if John is saying that the good guys get to go to heaven and the bad guys go to hell. But listen to me, listen to me. If you heard nothing else this semester, hear this. That's not the Christian gospel. See, the Christian gospel, and if you'll notice it very carefully, was laid out here in verse 17. Who is the invitation given to? Who is it that has the right to say come and to actually come and partake of these things? It's the thirsty. Oh, says Isaiah, let everyone who thirsts, let him come and drink. 
In other words, if you look at verse 15 and you begin to feel like it gathers you into its condemnation, the only thing that you're beginning to notice is your own thirst. And rather than run away from that, I want you to run towards it for a little bit and have the courage and the humility to admit something about yourself that you've always been afraid to admit was true because you didn't know what it meant. And that is to admit that the truth of the matter is, is I don't have anything together, spiritually or otherwise. And I, don't, I can't go to God with some sort of commendation like, well, I wasn't as bad as so-and-so. But the only means that I can go to God with is with my own thirst, is with one who is empty. And I can come, it promised me, in, in chapter 21, and buy there without price and enjoy God's blessings without payment. Look, my friends, the invitation that exists to you and is extended to you, and therefore the invitation into heaven, is to come and to drink of this God who wants nothing more than to fulfill all human history, and that includes your own personal history, that will culminate in being with you. How do you say no to a God like that? Who wants nothing more than to be with you, to know you, to walk with you forever and forever and forever. I don't think there's a more appropriate way to finish our semester in Revelation with this wonderful paragraph from C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. And I'll close with this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I can't even write them down. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, I pray that You would bestow upon these my friends who came out on a cold, rainy night the hope of heaven that they would themselves not leave this place without breaking and admitting to their own need, not being terrified by how poorly they measure up, but by seeing that all that reveals is that they are indeed quite thirsty and that You have through the center of the city of God a river of life, living water. And if somehow tonight we could all partake of that, it would not have been a waste. And our semester looking at how You deal with Your people throughout human history the things that went beforehand with this generation to whom the letter was originally written throughout the last 2,000 years of church history and finally through our own personal destinies. That Lord Jesus, You would encourage us with that one thought that if we go to You with our thirst, You will fill us up with ultimate, lifelong, and never-ending satisfaction. And that won't happen unless Your Holy Spirit shows up. So Lord Jesus, would You come and be among us by Your Spirit as we sing this final song, a song of beginnings, a song about Your advent among us.
your dwelling among us. And as we sing about that, we pray that it would call our hearts and minds away to longing for that time when we will always walk with you in never-ending joy. Lord Jesus, if you would do that, we would be eternally grateful. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.